You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. So for me, the supply side is something that's much more visible because it's out there. There's, there's nowhere that it can come from. Um, the demand pull is something a little bit harder to forecast. What's what's bullish about commodities is that it's not going to take a lot of demand pull for us to end up with the deficits that these guys are forecasting. Welcome back to Money Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. Happy New Year. It's 2023. And as we look ahead, I asked a commodity analyst and expert over at Exploration Insights, Joe Mazumdar, a frequent guest to come back on the show and share his outlook for next year. So Joe, thanks for joining me again. First question, do you generally agree with Goldman Sachs analysis to where commodities are going to be probably the best performing asset this next year due to an underinvestment in the commodities, yeah, it's not usual that I, I that I take much uh, you know out of a lot of these com- uh, like a uh, uh, year uh, in the future. What's going to happen, especially from Goldman, because they they tend to be grand manipulators. So if they tell you one thing, they're doing the exact opposite. Uh, this one I do believe in because it's from the commodity people. Um, so their idea is is similar to my problem. Let's say if we focus in on copper or something like that, that. Uh, uh, and, and this goes to a lot of commodities that there's a lot of underinvestment, a lot of capital not being deployed, and that might be because of financing um, the risk. The, that might be because of capital escalation that the numbers gotten a lot bigger. Might be because of geopolitical issues like in Peru and Chile that people don't want to develop. I know that in Zambia, uh, uh, you know, first Quantum delayed a lot of their capital uh, going into that country, which I, I think was multi-billion dollars to to expand operations there from from the mine to uh, the actual smelter until the, uh, the the presidential elections. And so a lot of this capital has been deferred. And so that underinvestment, you know, basically sets you up for a supply issue. So this is not a commodity super cycle demand pull issue like china uh, you know one uh, one single aspect this is a multiple issues but a lot on the supply side that there's underinvestment in a lot of commodities uh, uh such that we won't reach the kind of uh supply that people think even for let's say a uh, a modest growth in uh, in demand um, uh, so 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 I, I think that that's that that's hitting a lot of of, uh, of commodities and so yeah I have no problems with with that in the medium to long term the the, the near term is the issue if you get into it um, and, and it could be good timing is because the first half of the year um, you know, if if China's reopening of COVID with uh, post COVID nineteen restrictions, if that comes through, but it doesn't come out very well, the first quarter, first half could still be a little bit shaky for for some commodities. So, is a supply driven commodity super cycle is that generally um, more powerful or more bullish than a demand driven one? How do you how do those compare historically? It's this one for me is easier to see. It's it's just more uh, it's less opaque than than trying to dig into like uh, the real estate market in China or trying to figure out you know infrastructure uh, you know uh, issues in the states or what the government's going to do with new policies. This one's a real sort of hey, this project is not going to come in, or it's been delayed, or you know. You know, if this project is 
just been discovered. It'll take 18 years maybe for it to come into production. So that's just a, a timeline you could almost put your you know uh, hat on. You could just say, okay, that's that is what it is. Uh, there's nothing uh, you know going to come from Mars and and bring us all this copper that right now we're not producing. So for me, the supply side is something that's much more visible because it's out there. There's there's nowhere that it can come from. Um, the demand pull is something a little bit harder to forecast. What's what's bullish about commodities is that it's not going to take a lot of demand pull for us to end up with the deficits that these guys are forecasting. So there was no deficit forecast for 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 this year, sorry, in copper, but now they're starting to build up these deficits because a lot of the capital has been deferred. A lot of the expansions that we thought that would be already underway have been uh, uh, deferred in in places like Chile and Peru, uh, which are the biggest uh, producers of copper, and that's happening globally. A lot of places, I mean, with lithium, the Jadar deposit in Serbia, uh, you know that that got a big no in terms of permitting. I mean, that might be revisited. I don't know, but you know, a, a change in the lithium price may not change that decision. Joe, I saw an interesting exchange on social media recently to where one uh, commentator who's bullish on a certain commodity pointed out the low inventories at the LME. And then another person responded and said, uh, the low inventories, that's often overhyped. If you were involved in that conversation, what would you interject? My background mostly on the market side is is a lot on copper and uh, because of my background working as a market analyst for Phelps Dodge and Phoenix back in the early 2000s uh, is is that back then inventories, whether it was uh, the LME, uh, the Shanghai Exchange, Foreign Exchange, um, and, and also the COMEX, but also at that time, Cadelco was also building them at you know uh, inventories uh, because the copper price was like at fifty five cents, and they had to keep people employed, so they still kept producing copper, but they didn't sell it. So those four things were highly visible; we could see it. And so the stuff that was not visible was not very much, and that would be stuff held by uh, consumers or producers uh, because of you know, hey, you got to ship it to 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 japan and you're holding it at the port or something like that what what happened over the last two decades is because you know china has obviously become uh during that time in the 2000s the number one consumer of copper but also has about 50 percent of the smelting capacity for copper and you know basically is a large consumer of the metal uh, a lot of the inventories are held there but not on the Shanghai exchange. It's held by other people, other companies and stuff like that. And that's not visible. So even though you're seeing very low inventories, you know, there might be that the consumers might have, might be holding a lot of inventories such that it doesn't matter if the exchange actually has a low inventory. Um, what you really need to do is is get an idea what the global inventories are um, uh, and then understand that by consumption to know how many weeks of inventory you have. What I would say is what you really want to watch if you do want to watch the near term is watch the cathode premiums because the cathode premiums point to uh, a shortages in the market where people are willing to pay a premium on top of the price that they could get at exchange to make sure that they get the copper. That's really what you want to uh, want to watch. And so is, are you bullish on copper in 2023? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the first half might still be an issue because what's potentially going to drive a, a turnaround in copper is uh, China reopening, you know, with no COVID-19 restrictions. The issue is that is China prepared for, you know, the easing of restrictions? Because, you know, when when in Canada and the States, when, you know, we eased restrictions, you know, you know, a majority of the population was vaccinated with the latest vaccines and had already two or three shots. That's not the case in China. And so, the, you know, I, I've, I've read stories about, you know, them opening up and now people are flying to places like Italy and Italy are testing them and they find out 50 percent of the people on the plane uh, test positive for COVID. You know, uh, so uh, I, I don't know how that's going to work out. And, and that might result in more shutdowns, lockdowns, depending on if they you know, go back to the old policy. So I'm not sure if that's going to happen. But right now, because they took the genie out of the bottle with respect to taking off the restrictions, it's going to be hard for them to go back to the same level of restrictions in terms of shutting down entire cities. But that might be uh, a three to six month issue. But certainly in the second half, I can see that the 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 uh, uh, the demand for copper picking up. But since my my uh, my uh, my view on copper is more medium to long term. I'm going to be picking up, um, you know, what I think are, are good plays, you know, with that layer of the issue of market segmentation, with that issue about who can get permitted and not permitted, and the water issues that we have in a lot of places in the Americas, and social license to operate in into my uh, uh, thesis for for acquiring any company's shares. So, Joe, with the analysis of copper you just laid out, would you agree with those that say it's easy to predict where a commodity is going to go in the medium and long term, but it be, can be quite difficult in the short term? Is that kind of what you articulated right there with the copper market? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of funny because I would have said that because uh, uh, one of my boss's bosses uh, was uh, was the senior vice president of sales for, for Phelps Dodge, uh, Art Mealy, and he used to drum that into my head. He said, I can tell you what the price is, copper is going to be in 10 years, but uh, I can't tell you what it's going to be tomorrow. And the issue is that economics tells you, for good or bad, is uh, uh, copper is a, a commodity where price equals marginal cost. So then if you can work out what the marginal cost is for production into the future, then you go, eventually, the copper price will revert to this because that's the incentive for people to keep producing. But in the near term, there's so much speculation that'll change, you know, uh, the, the copper price that you can't predict exactly what it's going to be. So what I look at in 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 terms of the difference between what people are saying, like uh, you know, and, and that's the liquidity in the copper market, they're saying that copper uh, cathode is worth this much. But even if it's a low price. The industry is telling me with M&A that, hey, it's worth a lot more because these guys are into consolidation. So if you see consolidation, that's a pretty good precursor for a move in the market. Excellent advice. What about the precious metals? You follow the gold and silver markets. They've had a good two months. Do you think that continues throughout this year? So, so if we look at that, you know, a lot of that in the last quarter was basically driven by the dollar. So the dollar was down about seven to eight percent in the fourth quarter, uh, and uh, gold was up nine percent. Um, so, so I think a lot of that is dollar related. Uh, but if you know, if you look at uh, Pierre Lassonde when when he was with Newmont, uh, when I worked there, he used to say that, hey. 
When gold is up in multiple currencies, that's a bull market for gold. Really, the, the only currency that gold didn't do very well in was the U.S. dollar. A lot of other currencies it did really well in because of the issues uh, that we've had globally, and probably because of the issues of the strength of the U.S. dollar. Be because people are sort of forecasting now that inflation is easing in the states, that uh, we'll still get incremental increases in rates, but potentially not escalating quantums, and eventually it'll come down. But that doesn't mean there's going to be a rate cut. But the idea that the rates will come down and the tightening policy will will lessen, it's almost like the second derivative, people are taking a punt that the, that, of that being a negative impact on the dollar and hence the impact on the, the dollar in the, the last quarter. But if something else happens in Ukraine or somewhere else, uh, then you can see potentially a little bit more volatility in the U.S. dollar in the first uh, and second quarter. But most of the pundits are talking about the, the U.S. dollar weakness into the next year. And if that's the case, that would be good for the U.S. dollar denominated gold price and potentially for other U.S. denominated uh, uh, commodities. As you mentioned, you have a lot of experience as an analyst working with Phelps Dodge. Uh, what was your worst macro commodity call and why did you get it wrong, if you don't mind sharing? Okay. Well, I mean, if we go back there, uh, uh, what we used to do, so I used to have this model of demand and supply where we use industrial production to model demand. Um, and that was back in, let's say, 2002, three. So copper started off being at about 55 cents. And we had shut down a lot of production in the Southwest U.S., uh, Cadelco shut down production, but like I said, they were building up inventories. BHP took production offline. And so when it was growing from 55 cents to a buck and eventually two bucks, what we got wrong perpetually was China. We did not predict China's growth, which was double digits. It was like 15 to 20 percent when we were saying it would be five to seven. And Whatever China did made up for our wrong predictions or forecasts for Europe and, and somewhat uh, Japan and that. So China just offset everything. And then every year we would get that wrong because we couldn't think that they would actually grow that fast. So that was probably the biggest macro call. Um, uh, not saying that that was just my call in itself. It was just how it worked out that I was involved in. As recently as now, over the last couple of years, my um, my macro calls, maybe not a call, but more so um, ignorance of a lack of sort of knowledge of was was sort of t staying away from smaller commodity markets like tin and and uh, two years ago and lithium now. And the problem is that it's like what we talked about off air. I mean, lithium's growing in terms of the market, but there's no way I would have predicted that the spodumene price would have went up so much uh, just because that spodumene, I mean, what miners are doing to the spodumene, taking it from one to one and a half percent to six percent in terms of concentrate is really worth that much in value. That 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 really blew me away in terms of how much, and that was just because of a tight market. What about ESG, how it impacts the miners? Do you think, I've heard the two sides of this to where ESG, it's going to attract more funds to go into the metals and specific miners, but I've also heard it argued, no, the ESG requirements are becoming so burdensome, 
and restrictive and making permitting in some cases difficult, that it's actually going to make it more difficult for the miners. Uh, what would you have to share here? Well, I would say like we've got ESG. So we got the environmental part, if we want to focus in on that, then we got the social part, and then we got governance. So mostly when people talk about ESG, I guess they're focusing more on the E. Like because social social issues, social license to operate, let's say that's been an issue that miners have had to manage for decades. So that's nothing new for them. Governance with respect to the companies, uh, that's something new when we're seeing more diversified uh, boards and management teams, uh, uh, which is good. And that's been something people have been doing. I know that's been something we've had in Phelps Dodge when I first worked there in, in the 2000s, uh, you know, mostly from the countries that we were working in with Latinos and people like that coming into management. The environmental part is another bigger issue because there we had no problems with diesel trucks. We had no problems if we were getting our power from a coal mine. Uh, you know, uh, those were never an issue. Now that's being more of an issue to say, hey, I'll only invest in your copper mine, which is a critical mineral for some some company countries, and say, uh, and that's one thing I want exposure to. But if you if you've got carbon footprint, if your carbon footprint's whatever, then I can't invest in it. And so now what we're seeing is that before, like whatever, 10, 20 years ago, we would focus in on the cash cost. Here's the cash cost curve. You know, here's my percentile. I'm in the lower quartile. So, hey, you know, I'm a good project. Invest in me. Now it's sort of like, okay, what's your cost profile? I'm at P50. Okay, but, you know, what's, what's your carbon footprint? And then you go, hey, I'm 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 at the bottom. I'm in the lower quartile. Well, that I can invest in. So so that could trump some of the economics of some projects, especially you know in good jurisdictions where people can say, hey, you know, it's a good jurisdiction. You know, the permits are in. Blah 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 blah. And they have a low ESG footprint. You know, meaning that they've got hydropower, wind, or whatever that they've got, and they also music electric trucks so the less diesel footprint but that's really infrastructure driven because for someone to have the electrification infrastructurally they got to be really close to grid power you know because um, no one's building 1000 kilometer power lines so uh, and then where are they getting the power from so if it's just coming from coal that's okay if you're in china because they care less about it but if you're a western company you know that could kill you in terms of getting that investment. So I can see both sides. But if you have everything going for you, that is a boon in this current market. Okay. So you filter that in. That's one of the key filters you're going to use when you're doing your due diligence then, what you oh, just yeah. described. Yeah, because in the end, you know, our liquidity event is a takeout. And so when we're looking for a takeout, if it's a Western company, because now we have that imposition that Chinese companies can't be the M&A suitor anymore, especially for in Canada and probably in the States, but probably they're not saying it as loudly, but I'm sure that's probably an issue, is that uh, now we have to deal with their you know, shareholders and what they want. And if you can prove that, hey, this will actually not only, you know, keep your cost curve the same, let's say, but lower your carbon footprint per ton of copper produced or per ton of gold ounce uh, produced, then that might be something that they want, you know, because they're, they, their carbon footprint is so big in their other operations. And so that's definitely something that people have to take account of. 
What about uh, where you're putting your money in terms of the producers, developers, explorers? Can you share where you're uh, seeing value right now? Well, you know, the thing is that if we talk about, you know, the issue with development and, you know, capital deployed and not deployed and, you know, the potential for, you know, underinvestment, that's what we're sitting at right now. And retail does not want to touch anything that's a development project because of capital escalation, you know, that we've seen in, you know, these marginal gold projects in Northern Ontario and that, uh, and, and elsewhere. And, and but, the, but the thing is that that's the same reason that we think commodities are going up is because we're not investing in these development plays. So it's about getting the timing right though, right? As the investor. <laughs> yeah. Because if you pick the one that's going to get acquired, then that's fine. You know, but if you pick the one that's going to produce their own and then it's going to take them a couple of years before acquired, then you got to take that into consideration because that's definitely something that could happen uh, because some people might want to wait until it's into production and they've you know passed by all the hurdles. Um, but what we're seeing right now in terms of development plays for critical minerals, it's a different world than development projects for gold. In, in that, you know, governments, private equity, and some other firms are willing to give them the money if it gives them more exposure to critical minerals. That's not the case for gold and silver, you know. So if you are in the development space uh, and you're worried about access to capital, then I would focus more on the critical mineral uh, developers. So I'm expiration. I'm fine with anything in terms of commodities. Uh, but most of what I've been purchasing – over the last year has been a switch from a lot of precious to uh, to copper. And that's exploration, that's production, and that's sort of pseudo-development, like uh, advanced exploration, uh, because I know copper is an issue. Uh, and, and if I could find one that actually makes cathode even better, because then it doesn't have to be sent to a smelter. Uh, so, and most of those smelters, like I said, are in China. So, so that's one thing that I've been sort of uh, doing. The other thing is, you know, thankfully I did see the issue about margin compression with uh, with gold companies earlier this year, and so I'd gotten out of precious metal production and then sort of moving into more of the royalty space uh, and more uh, royalty generators and that sort of thing. Uh, Joe, uh, on the uh, gold mining, I've had more than one person from the sector tell me that they think gold mining is going to be hurt by the ESG movement in that there that could be a potential hindrance for developing gold mines in the future. Do you agree with that, by the way? Yeah, so ESG, in terms of the carbon footprint, a lot of the carbon footprint for gold is actually less than other commodities because they don't have to send it to a smelter. And so that next level of scope in terms of shipping freight uh, and then where does the power come from that smelter to produce the copper, that impact does not impact gold. So the carbon footprint overall, if it's like an electric – a project that's close to a grid and stuff like that is actually lower than for, especially for a nickel project. But the, but the issue is that the nickel and the copper and these other commodities are used in this carbon neutral sort of uh, society that we need these metals. And so there's, there's a sort of a theoretical offset there that this is what you need, but that gold doesn't fit into that picture. Uh, and so in terms of ESG, you're not going to get that government funding for gold development play. You're not going to get that equity that, that's all ESG-focused equity fund right now going into a gold play. And so your access to capital is less than for that copper play, I would say. 
you know, uh, even though your carbon footprint might be less. The problem is that your carbon footprint is less for a product that's not involved in the carbon neutral society. Okay. So I have a follow-up question. If that, what we just laid out there, uh, causes less gold production because of this, does that affect the price of gold at all? Because I've also had guests on the show say that the price of gold is not affected by supply and demand the way other commodities are. What What are your thoughts no, here? Absolutely. It's okay. not. It's not a price equals marginal cost commodity. It's more of a speculative commodity. People. That's why people are looking at you know, uh, everything that's happening in the economy. So we're looking at all these macros and then gold sort of like the last thing that comes out of the toothpaste and says, you know what, this is my barometer on what's happening in the world. And people want it. Uh, you know, the thing is that when when they have, they can't trust their currency, they can't trust their government, or, you know, uh, they want gold. They want something to hold on to because they don't trust anything. And that's the same issue that people thought that they could get from cryptocurrency, which has not been a solution. So if anything, people have gone back to gold thinking, you know, screw cryptocurrency, I'm, I'm going to stick to my gold. And so there is that demand for gold for that, but it's not driven by, hey, you know, it costs you $1,600 to produce gold right now. Well, if I'm looking for that incremental ounce, yeah, I'm going to have to pay that $1,600 or $1,700. But in terms of you know, a direct relationship, um, I, I'm not sure about because there, there's so much gold above ground that's been held that's not consumed. But copper, it is consumed. Uh, these other commodities are consumed. Uh, we do have some scrap from copper, but a lot of these commodities, you know, it's hard to get that out again. Gold, it's still there. There's a lot of gold above surface. But whether you want it in your hands or not, uh, that's where you really have to pay. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I agree with both camps in terms of, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, gold being different. Uh, silver is sort of like somewhere in between. You know, a base metal and a and a precious metal, because it is a mineral that can be used in the uh, carbon neutral uh, society with respect to uh, solar panels and that. So, uh, but 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 gold's not there yet. What about uh, the Canadian regulators? What are your thoughts on them allowing small cap companies to raise between five and ten million dollars with no prospectus and no hold on the stock? Uh, what do you think about this? Uh, I, I like see. I, I like I like what they do in Australia. I like the fact that they don't have the hold, uh, and uh, you know all all it's doing for me is basically locking in a price, and I have a certain allotment that I don't have to worry about the price going up as I'm buying. So for me, I like I like that. But I would warn people that you know I'm not sure how this impacts flow through because uh, the less the more disincentivized shareholders you have that are just in there for something else besides the management, besides the asset, besides all those things you're buying the stock for, the more reason they'll sell. And if and if it's a tax incentive, there's no reason for them to wait four months to sell it. Now they can sell it right away. And so you have to be a little bit more conscious of the people that company has included in that uh, private placement. And then charity flow through would be a difference, though. If it's charity flow yeah. through, maybe it's okay. Yeah, charity flow through is is very important in the sense that you have a back end buyer that will take that charity flow through, and then you have a hard dollar price. And as long as the market is valuing it on the hard dollar price, the shares don't balloon out to a buck forty and then come back to a buck. Uh, 
you know, and everybody knows the real hard dollar price is a buck. That's fine. You know, and I, I think, I think, uh, uh, for me, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I like it more, uh, uh, cause I do like the Australian model a lot. Pedro, I know you got to go, but before you go, uh, one stock pick, are you able to share with us? Yeah. I mean, uh, we just, uh, I just added, uh, uh, you know, uh, a prospect generator. So I had a prospect generator in, in Australia that I liked. They made a deal with, uh, with a major company on a farm in, uh, but I, I actually liked the farm in that the, that the major did with another company that was headwater gold hwg on the venture um it's a prospect generator it's got good management and they're based out of reno nevada and most of their assets are in the great basin of uh the western u.s and they have a you know a a decent deal with newcrest and um, a lot of you know, uh, a funded uh, catalyst coming up, which is very important right now in terms of access to capital for people. And also the management fees that they get to operate those, uh, that budget for over the next 12 months, uh, you know, pays for their GNA. So they really only need to raise for their 100% assets. So if they do, they will be opportunistic with, with respect to their share price. They're not under a gun to raise money coming into the new year, which is companies I would definitely like to avoid. So in terms of the junior sector, that's a, a more safe investment as a prospect generator. This isn't a hit or miss exploration play. Yeah, no, they've got a lot of irons in the fire and how they fund them. Uh, uh, you know, three or four projects are already funded for a certain amount of time by by Newcrest. Uh, and then it will be results driven. And that's that's basically geological risk. And I'm OK with that because that's why we're in it. Yep. And I think your partner, Brent, says uh, you'd rather take geological risk than financing risk, right? <laughs> if I recall well, him yeah. saying that. Because if you want that, you know, whatever three bagger or whatever, it's going to be the drill bit that gives it to you because that's an unknown and that's why you're drilling. But you don't want to find out, oh, hey, management did something else or, hey, you know, jurisdictionally, we've got a security issue or something like that, that you should have seen before. That that happened. Uh, so uh, you know that, that that's what I, I tend to like. I'm okay with the geological risk. Excellent. All right. Joe's website is explorationinsights.com. There's a lot of educational materials you can find there. And if you're interested in his paid for letter, you can also find information there. Joe, really appreciate the check in, and I'll uh, reach out to you in about three months to bring you back on the show. Great. Thanks very much, Bill. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. 
I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.